Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, as we uh, broadcast every every time we have a, a podcast, uh, we're at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, and we're in the back room today. It's cooled down enough for us to get back here, so hopefully the sound quality is a little better than normal. Not normal, but at least for the last few shows. Uh, so, uh, a number of us, or all of us, have been busy and on the road and doing different things, and so as we introduce ourselves today, uh, how about if we just kind of share a little bit about what, uh, what we've been up to? So, Glenn, why don't, you, why don't you start off? Okay, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I have been, during the summer, I actually was trying to figure out what I did, but, uh, <laughs> but I was... Uh, I kept busy. I was really working on upgrading my website and um, uh, getting some more work done on a project I'm doing on emerging worldviews. All right. Well, great. Now, you were on the road for a little bit. Was that pleasure or was that business? That was visiting family. Okay. okay. My kids have been out in right. South Bend, Indiana. All right. We were speculating as to what, <laughs> what, what had taken you away on one of our recent shows. And uh, anyway, and I'm C.R. Wiley, and uh, just recently I was out uh, in West Virginia and enjoyed my time out there and spent some time at Christ Church in Morgantown and uh, got to know some great guys there. And, and uh, as we got to know each other, we talked about things that we could do with each other. And so it was a very profitable, very profitable time. It, what, what actually was the occasion for my going out there was uh, my wife and I took our uh, daughter back to college. She started her sophomore year at Grove City College there in Western PA, back in my old stomping grounds, mm. back in, my, in, the, in the region that I was, of Pennsylvania that I was born in. Anyway, so it was a great time, got to know some folks, and I enjoyed myself immensely. All right, Tom, ah, what have you been up to? Thomas is back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm Thomas Price, I'm a, a Christian theologian and ethicist. Um, I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and uh, in Currently, I'm also teaching at University of St. Joseph here in West Hartford. And, um, well, I've been doing a lot of things. Um, I've been continuing to work on some of these themes we've been uh, talking about, uh, theology in relationship to technology, propaganda, and, and also I'm sort of tracing the way in which um, the current evangelical uh, situation uh, has developed and what has made it... Um, made it in such a condition that it's um, easily manipulatable by the spirits of the age. Yeah, right. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work in that end. Um, but on the other hand, I got to do a little traveling. I went through your old stomping ground, both um, yeah. Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Landed in uh, where I grew up, Virginia. Uh, I got to see my sister, my parents, and then we all kind of went together up to the Berkshire. So it was a long trip back. Yeah, yeah. A lot of driving, but it was wonderful. I actually got to to breathe that fresh mountain air, right. catch my breath a little bit, uh, be out in, in the elements, did some trout fishing. Nice. So, yeah, so I'm back though, right. and I'm happy to be back. Right. This is nice. Now the, now the Berkshires, I think, is a, is, is a region of the country that folks outside New England don't know no, much right. about, That's right. but it's a lovely area. It's where James Taylor, the famous James Taylor has settled is, there. Yeah, yep, and where Norman Rockwell lived That's, for years. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I've written a bunch of stuff. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, today is Tom's day, mm. and Tom has talked to us a little bit about what he wants to talk about. So, Tom, what are we talking about today? Okay, well, I'm going to try to pull this off. It's something I'm thinking about because I'm actually preparing a few classes and also um, doing some writing on. But I'm going to return to a theme we've kind of talked about in some of the different topics we've talked about, but uh, with a little more focus. And so I'm going to begin with sort of just this notion of secular again, um, the secular secularity. Um, but one of the things I'm sort of after is um, how did that sort of concept start to develop and what changes took place? Because I'm really interested in the way in which theology and religion as concepts shifted as a different notion of, of a different worldview actually started to, to take over in Western thought in particular. 
And also the way in which that shift actually is informing the Christian church in the West now in many ways um, that a lot of Christians don't even, aren't even aware of. And so we're, we're tending to use terms like theology and religion and virtue and uh, really just about everything in ways that may be a lot less similar to what historic Christianity has held since the beginning then we realize, even though we may still use some of the terms and have some affinities to it. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's kind of where I'm going with this. So John Milbank and his, his uh, kind of a now famous work, um, I think it was a Secular Theory and Theology. Or theology and, and secular social, social theory. theory. Sorry, yeah, that's it. Social, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've been on vacation. That's right. Theology and social theory. Um, he, he talks about that. He has this little introduction. I think he's he's fairly accurate on on this. He says once there was no secular. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what he meant by that is right. is secular. And of course, the terms that that um, that we use for it, it tended to really speak about a time period. Right. It was talking about sort of the age between Christ's first coming and Christ's second. It was, it was about a time and, and a right. sort of historical um, orientation, whereas the shift in Western culture went from that to it becoming actually a space. So it went yeah. from a temporal set of, of um, categories to a spatial set. And increasingly, as this took over, it basically started to conceive itself as the whole room. And so what once was, again, a way of describing the, this, um, this time period between the you know, Advent and the Second Coming started to take on the way in which the whole frame was to be understood. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening when that happens is things like theology and religion start to have to accommodate themselves to a space that has predominantly placed them somewhere in that space right. versus them having a certain um, uh, center in the previous way of con conceiving things. Right, right. For theolo the theological and metaphysical picture of Christianity, for example, um, it defined what that, that uh, time period was. Mm -hmm. Now, theology and religion had to find a place within this space, and increasingly it was being pushed somewhere. Right, so it, it went from being the queen of the disciplines to just sort of a discipline to, that tries to fit into to a fit larger. In. Yeah, so before, you know, like when, we, when, when you go to, you know, a, a graduation, you see the pomp and circumstance. Yeah. You know, who, you know, in a traditional university leads the procession? Well, it's theology. Yeah. You know, and the color. That you know, when you think of the hoods, yeah, you know, it's, it was in a scarlet, right, for theology, if yeah, I remember correctly. Traditionally, I think it was, yeah, yeah. So, so the queen of the disciplines is the one that defines the large, the the, sort of the picture, yeah. the sort of the, the larger picture, and then everything else has its place. Yeah, you know, and then you know you get these new disciplines like business administration or orcra or something, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, some chartreuse. <laughs> so they've run out of all the good yeah. colors. You know. You know the, the, there's an interesting route to all of this that I think is completely invisible to us. Hmm. Well, first of all, just as a quick note, Rodney Stark uh, argues in The Victory of Reason that hmm. the necessity of theology in the sense of, you know, as Christians, we have scriptures that don't answer directly any of the questions we want to ask. So you have to engage in intellectual activity around it uh, in order to answer these, these questions. He says that is the thing that really makes reason important in the West. So to Stark, theology, if Stark is right here, theology is not only the queen of the sciences, it is actually the origin, the, the, the root out of which these other rational, fields that develop. You know, you could, you could say that then that everyone who teaches in the academy, everyone in the university should be a theologian. Hmm. It's just their discipline, their, their focus. It's, from, that, a, from a medieval perspective, that's absolutely true. In, in a way, 
actually, I think to Milbank's credit, he perceived a lot of this more than maybe originally I was even going to give him credit for. I don't always like where he goes with certain things, right, and I right. think sometimes he's, he's been a major disappointment to he, me. He has. He ended up, you know, he, he he ended up one of those people that you know you, you felt like okay, this was gonna this was gonna break in the right, territory right, that, right. that, and then yeah, it's yeah, kind of like David tamed. Hart, David yeah, Bowie oh, yeah, Hart. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry, David. <laughs> he doesn't care what I think, so it doesn't matter. Um, but but um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things you you have going on here is, and this is something I think Milbank and that work actually picks up, is that what is cloaked under the defenses of sec the secular as a space increasingly um, is problematizing the theological discipline. Mm -hmm. So you notice theology move from the queen to having to justify itself within yeah. a, a public. Right. Matched right. by that is something that goes with religion. Mm -hmm. um, prior to this understanding of things in the West, religion would have never been considered something, A, that one had to find a place for mm -hmm. because it defined really what the secular order should look like. Right. Mm -hmm. The question was which, what form of religion oriented itself in the most faithful way to the created order as it was oriented towards mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the creator and right. in, in light of redemption. Right. And so that was it. You know, that, was, that was why when, when Zwingli, you know, the Swiss reformer, could write a book on true and false religion, he, wasn't, he didn't have to give a case for why this book had to take place. Everyone knew what was going on here. The question then was, what, what, is, what does proper worship look like that's non-idolatrous? Right. And one right. that actually is oriented toward redemption and and uh, and the, the shift. I like how uh, one theologian the shift from our absolute dependence on God to true friendship with God. I mean, that's yeah. that's yeah. one one way of putting redemption um, and and the worship oriented with. Yeah, that's good. And and so that yeah that that kind of picture shifts now. And so theology starts to have to defend itself eventually and hmm. finds itself increasingly, even still increasingly has to. You have religion department, um, but theology departments are harder yeah, and, and harder it's all, to find. It's all, it's all uh, you know, def the defense has to do with this sort of uh, utility. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, one of my alma maters uh, mm -hmm. in Harvard Divinity School, they present themselves as uh, the institution that will help you understand why all these crazy people in the world are doing all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> so, you know, it's, so, you know, if you, if you want to understand why Muslims behave the way they do, come to Harvard Divinity School and we'll talk about that for yeah. you. We'll help you understand. And you're usually to blame, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Interestingly enough, a lot, I, and I, I suspect, I, I haven't read Milbank on this, but I suspect he, he doesn't pick this up. A lot of the root of this is found in John Locke. Interesting. Lockean psychology says that the human mind, when you're born, is a tabula rasa. It's a blank slate. Right. Hmm. And so as you accumulate experiences, the mind begins to find ways to organize them, and that's the way we learn. Now, we know this is false, yeah. but this was really, really big in the 18th century. And what that meant is, since there are no intrinsic structures in the human mind to create um, any kind of organization or meaning, it's just a matter of experience, hmm. that went to, therefore, we should not have structures, we should not present structures to people, we should let them develop their own because the structures are all arbitrary anyway. Right, right. And that leads Diderot and D'Alembert to do something absolutely groundbreaking when they make the encyclopedia. They organize it alphabetically. Hmm. Up to that point, any kind of encyclopedia or compendium of knowledge was organized topically in a structure that showed how all the different pieces interrelated actually under theology. Yeah. By breaking it down to alphabetization, <clears throat> What they were doing was basically saying, no, these connections are not, they're just arbitrary. They are not really there. Hmm. We are going to provide you with the raw material to create your own. Interesting. Now I have one more reason to, to, to dislike alphabet, you know, the alphabet, <laughs> ordering things in, in alphabetical <laughs> ways. You know. But, that, you know, it's, 
this this whole this whole you know this gets us to the metric system mm -hmm. you know this the, the, the enlightenment project the decimal you know, system that's right <laughs> is to is intended to sort of order reality uh, rationally but by means of sort of like a kind of a structure that's alien to the human mm -hmm. so like when we think about the you know the english uh, measure measuring system you know inches feet mm -hmm. and that kind of thing you know you're, you're talking about the, the human body mm -hmm. as being sort of the, the the, the standard, hmm. whereas when you talk yeah. about the metric system, you've got just you know, you know, sort of a, uh, a system that's based on the number ten. <laughs> well, that, that's right. There, everything starts to become fragmented and a bit arbitrary at some mm -hmm. point. Right. But I, and I think there's there's a lot going on. That's why I thought that whole notion of secularity as a space is, is important. The way in which theology shifts, um, because theology is almost the the. Um, the way in which you measure what's going on in, yeah. in the picture. And, and here, because um, something else starts to replace theology, um, it's because something else has replaced the cosmology that was yeah. historically held together in sort of the Christian West by this shift to secular, a secular space. Um, interestingly, Charles Taylor's little book, The Ethics of Authenticity, um, he's kind of tracing sort of three malaises that happened in this kind of shift that's going on. And, um, and he talks about certain worries that develop, especially in the West. And, and one of the ones he, he, he's looking at is the first source and worry is in, of individualism. But he's not looking at it in the sort of the healthy kind of move to the individual, which is not getting subsumed into a kind of a totalitarian collective. He's not right. looking at He's looking at more as the autonomous or the libertarian notion of, of the human being that, that kind of, that is the anthropology of some of nominalistic view of God, right? Mm -hmm. not, not as a human being that has a certain nature steeped in a creation that mirrors forth the creator's mm -hmm. attributes. Um, but in this case, power and choice. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of what he's after. But he goes, the first source of worry is individualism, which happens when this sort of secular um, space happens. He is, of course, individual and also names what many people consider the finest achievement of civilization. We live in a world where people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in conscience what convictions to espouse, to determine the shape of their lives in a whole host of ways that their ancestors couldn't control. And these rights are generally defended by our legal systems. In principle, people are no longer sacrifice to the demands of a supposedly sacred order that transcends them. Mm. So he's very aware of the connection that there is one kind of um, notion of the human individual that I think is a healthy outgrowth of the Reformation and Christianity. There is a mirror figure mm. that comes from some of these secular mm. spaces that actually looks a lot very similar, talks about rights and human dignity and the human individual and autonomy, but is actually a damning alternative. Yeah. And parasitic. Parasitic, that's yeah. right. That's the key. The, parasite, the parasitic is what obscures the, the, the alternative theology that's driving it, mm -hmm. I mean, or the right. bad theology driving it. Right, he, right. And he talks about this, and uh, you know, and of course, this may be telling about about where we fit in in the world paradigm. He goes, very few people want to go back to the achievement <laughs> on this achievement. Mm -hmm. He goes, many think it's still incomplete. You know, that economic arrangements, the patterns of the family life, traditional notions of hierarchy, still restrict too much mm -hmm. freedom right. to be ourselves, whatever that means. Right, right. But he goes, modern freedom was won by our breaking loose from older moral horizons. And I would argue that, that this is also the case, that it's break, it, it broke loose from older religious horizons. Right. Well, yeah. well, you know, uh, what, when I was talking about alphabetization, that's an area of epistemology, branch yeah. of philosophy dealing with knowledge and truth. Mm -hmm. But epistemology, as traditionally understood and I think accurately understood, depends on metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Depends on what's real, because what's real determines what can be known and how you know it. Know it. And what we're seeing here in all of this is a substantial change in the metaphysical assumptions yep. about the nature of reality, the nature of human existence, the nature of our relations with each other. The, the, an incredibly profound shift that's taking place at that level that's almost completely invisible to the vast majority of people. Yes. Right, yeah. right. You know, this, 
gets me to my sermons that I'll be preaching over the next couple of weeks. I'm doing a two, I'm doing two, two sermons on sacraments. Oh, nice, nice. So I'll be talking about the Lord's Supper this week, and then oh, next nice. week I'll be talking about nice. baptism. <laughs> and in, what I'm going to do is uh, introduce uh, people to the water that they're swimming in, and that, you know, basically I'll be talking about, you know, individualism and voluntarism, and yeah. that's how they interpret the sacraments is yeah. through those yeah. categories. Yeah. It's unconscious. It's part of the social milieu in which they they live and think. Yeah. But they they assume that what is sort of commonsensical for them was the case yeah. in the first century. Yeah. Right. So so. You know, for example, I've come across people who have objected to the term sacrament. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the Bible. You know, <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Like, no, Nor is the word Bible, anyway. Yes. Just, just one. <laughs> Nor is the word Trinity. <laughs> that's, right. Is used. that's right. Yeah, so there's a lot. But Nor is the English word God, anyway. Sorry. <laughs> you, you know where I'm going. So, but, but what, I, I, what I present to them is, you know, the history. What I'm going to do is I'm going to present the history of the word sacrament. You know, Sasser, the Latin, you know, the, for sacred. But also the fact that the Latin sacrament, you know, this, this, this word sacrament coming, derived from the Latin, is a, itself a translation from the Greek, mystery. Yeah. Now, which the, is a biblical word. Which is. Right. It occurs 27 times in the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, mm. now, mysterion mm -hmm. is not what Sherlock Holmes that's was right. up to solve. <laughs> yes, that's right. And now, but, so when people hear mystery, in our day, they think, okay, this is a puzzle that logic yeah. is able to solve. Yeah. You know, if I just have the data, you know, the whole, you know, Holmes is such a marvelous caricature of the yeah. modern way of thought, you know, way of approaching reality. It's, it's perfect, you know, he's perfect, a perfect personification, yeah. a fictional personification of the, of, the, of the limitations of the way we think today. Hmm. But as you know, you know what, what mystery means in the Bible is something secret, something that's hidden within something else. Yeah. So in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says, unless you can discern the body, hmm. you shouldn't eat the supper because you will bring judgment upon you yourself. What he's, what he's getting at is the ability to see past the surface yes. and the meaning contained within it. Interesting, because this, uh, another book I've been uh, kind of quoting out of Nicholas Lash's brilliant book, The Beginning and the End of Religion, um, one of the things he talks about is that happens with this shift of religion from its, its original sense in sort of Christian, uh, Christian West to this alteration is that the surface starts to take on more pronounced meaning. Yes. And it, it, it doesn't merely hide anything hidden. It almost makes everything reducible to that surface. And one of the things he's saying is in there, there, there are two aspects. On the theological aspects, aspect, um, he, he talks about the way in which the theological in the Western tradition, well, the whole Christian tradition up until these shifts, um, had this contemplative dimension that was bound up with discerning that hiddenness because ultimately there's a place at which the surface as we've talked about before, is, is pointing to that which is its infinite source. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about the way in which in, in the classic Christian understanding of God as, as the simplicity of God, which is it's being actually destroyed in evangelical theology right now. Um, I hope you're going to talk about that. Uh, that's a good topic because <laughs> they're replacing it with this dynamic personalism that owes to process theology and, and Hegel. Yeah, I know those guys. I know those guys. They're all over the place. Relationship and therapy go. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this stillness requires contemplation away from the, the, you know, the, the moving, mm -hmm. the dynamism of everything right. else. And it's the heart of everything. And that is... That's why the contemplative is at the heart of the prayerful um, life of Christian theology. Um, and the spiritual was not broken off from the theoretical and intellectual. The, it wasn't the practical and the theoretical. These two yeah. were interwoven and connected right. in a whole. Right. And so what ends up happening is you start to see theology move from knowledge of God um, as a living communal knowledge, like Anselm, well, like, what does Anselm say at the beginning of his faith-seeking understanding? This is a prayer. Mm -hmm. And this, this intellectual reflection is, I, I'm a, I believe, help my own belief kind of thing. Right. Um, whereas it moves from that to saving facts. 
mm. saving knowledge in a way that is on the same plane as natural knowledge almost, just has a difference. Yes, yes. This is interesting, you know, I was thinking about, I, I, working with, you know, sacrament, thinking about sacraments, and of course Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talks mm. about participation. Mm. But the Greek there is koinonia. Yes, yeah, yeah you absolutely. Know, you know, yeah. So participation is fellowship, you know, yeah. so with fellowship with the blood of Christ, fellowship with yeah. the bread, yeah. you know, and then of course, you know, Paul connects it to the body, you know, yeah. the church, you know, one body, one bot, one loaf, you know, all that kind of stuff. But this this way of thinking, this yeah. factual way of thinking, yeah. never gets you there. Never right. gets you there. And our the the, mo the closest we can get to it is all right. If we're going to think sacramentally, is the bread the body, mm -hmm. meaning the physical body of Christ? Mm -hmm. We don't go to the next step of saying, what else is it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the bread is fellowship in the body of Christ. But what is the body of Christ? Well, it's his body, mm -hmm. but it's also the church. Mm -hmm. yes. So there's, there's sort of a, a, a multi-level mm -hmm. multi signification of what's going on here that yeah. we... We, I, I've said multiple times that if you could bring a, I, I teach this in my classes all the time, mm -hmm. if you could bring a medieval person forward mm -hmm. to our era, they would be really impressed with our technology, they'd be really impressed with our knowledge, but they would be utterly unimpressed with our wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. What they would say is, you guys know so much, but you understand nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because... Yeah we are hopelessly one-dimensional in our thinking. Right. Yeah. That was not true of the medievals, and it certainly wasn't true in Jesus' right. day. So Sunday, I'm going to be going up, you know, up against that very thing. You know, mm -hmm. Bible-believing people in my congregation you know, will have a hard time sort of bringing, you know, sort of accepting the depth. So I, I, yeah. I read, I read a, a Ben Witherington, Catholic mm -hmm. thinker, mm -hmm. on Ephesians 5. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the you shall not touch passage, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the passage that no one wants to deal with about mm -hmm. wives submit to your husbands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And without going through the whole thing, he made some really interesting points where he said that, you know, look, if you look at what, what Jesus experienced and compare it to Genesis 3, what you find is God's judgment on Adam is that the ground is, is going to produce thorns and thistles, and you're going to eat your bread by the sweat of your brow, and it's all going to be pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Jesus has a crown of thorns. Mm. He sweats blood. Mm. Mm. I mean, there, there is a direct connection, especially between Luke, right. Luke's description of the Passion in Genesis 3. Right, right. And then when you go to John and he is uh, pierced with the spear, right. when blood and water flow out, as a good Catholic, he read that as a reference to creating the church hmm. through the water of baptism hmm. and the blood in the cup at communion. Right, right. Well, and you know what? As a Protestant, I look at this and say, what planet did he come from? <laughs> but I think he is really onto something yeah. in this deeper understanding of the significance, the symbolic significance of what we're looking at. Right. Yeah. Because reality is more than just superficial appearances. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, and, and that, I think one of the things, and this has really impacted, I think, in particular biblical studies, is the way in which sort of the secular um, as a space and the secular as time mm -hmm. have both kind of driven the, the historical surface level um, rather than the rich um, mm -hmm. um, metaphysical web that biblical and, and even the patristic and, and really Christianity up until the kind of modern age. Right. Well, and it, it, yeah. and it goes back to alphabetization again. I would argue yeah. that that's really kind of fundamental to it because when you're looking at alphabetization and all of the ideas that, that surround that, what you're saying is that things are only what they are. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Right. They, don't, they don't refer to anything else. There's no depth. There, and there's no interconnection. There's no. Right. Yeah, everything there's is no sort of, It's back to your one-dimensional yeah, thinking. Sort of Leibniz, you know, sort of monads. Everything's mm -hmm. sort of like self-contained and just <laughs> bouncing off each other. Right. <laughs> Nicholas Slash calls it. He goes, and this is the brave new world. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. It's a troubling world. 
I have right. a quote. I, I, I hope the track here, that, but, but it was really, um, it really gave uh, uh, something uh, about the beautiful difference going on. I'm going to throw a little curveball into this, and then I'll kind of wrap myself back around. But on the, on the level of, of it, what uh, Charles Taylor calls all of this a narrowing, of course, mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, he, he talks about the dark side of this kind of anthropology or this notion of what it means to be a human starts to shift towards subjectivity and a strong emphasis on the self, right? Mm -hmm. Because no longer does the cosmic, uh, the external world of meaning draw us into its truth, beauty, and goodness and its orientation. In this case now, it, it, the burden is now placed on the individual both through its choices and and um, and actions to kind of in, in the you know the dare to use your own thought for that matter, mm -hmm. um, you bear the whole burden of self-actualization, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and and really. Um, but anyway, he says, in other words, the dark side of individual is a centering on the self. I mean, classically, this is sort of the egoism that Aquinas would call sin. <laughs> so, so this is Taylor now. The right? Taylor right here. Yep. But he says, um, which both flattens and narrows our lives, makes them poorer in meaning and less concerned with anything other than this kind of, this project of self-building. Hmm. Um, and he's talking again of the, the, this kind of, anthropology that cuts itself and loosens itself from this this rich web of meaning that right. you know a and created order would give so in, in, in so much of the anxiety the existential existential angst you know yeah. this sort of I gotta I've got to sort of demonstrate my significance through my accomplishments yeah you know and uh, self-expression through my self-expression that's right for my yeah. freedom yeah almost uh, you almost Forced to express to express your freedom through the denunciation yeah. of your bodily life, yeah. so that the only way a person can say I'm free is to is to sort of uh, you know pursue a way of life that is at odds with one's bodily constitution. So women and men, you know, we've gone that down this road right. so many times it's getting kind of old, but 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 yeah. the, the, the kind of at the heart of it is this this need for meaning that we all have, and if we can't receive it, and we're forced to create it, yeah. how do we go about that? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's something that just, uh, you, you can't rest. There's no rest. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, the, the thing that I find really fascinating about this is that if you were to approach someone from the classical world, the world that Jesus lived in, and gave them this prospect of a life of complete freedom com with no constraints on anything, not biology, not nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They would have conceived it as absolutely terrifying. Yes. And further, they'd have conceived it as evil yeah. Yeah. because that is the definition of the primordial chaos out of which yes. the gods yeah. or God, depending on, on your religious perspective, created the world and that has been the constant enemy of God or the gods right. throughout history. Right. What we are advocating now hmm. is the nightmare of the ancient it, world. It's interesting because that's actually, what, almost this whole book is about that. If, if you are not yeah, the one by Nicholas Lash, The Beginning and End of Religion. Um, he's talking about, of course, the beginning and end of religion as defined by modernity. But he's talking about in that window that opens up, if you don't have the Christian or, uh, shalom filling that vacuum, you have this terrifying vision, which is the byproduct of it. And he literally uses that language of nightmare and, mm -hmm. and terror mm -hmm. throughout the book. That, that is really, or you know, the abyss of freedom has been Correct. used, uh, Nietzsche. And, and that, and one of the things they talked about, of course, is the way we, you just mentioned with Locke and, and, and what opened up with that, sort of the expansion of instrumental reason. We talked about right. that. He, uh, Taylor puts it this way. He goes, once society no longer has a sacred structure, once social arrangements and modes of action no longer grounded in the order of things or, or in, in the will of God, they are thus up for grabs. They can be redesigned with their consequences for the happiness and well-being of individuals as our goal. But the problem there is, and I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth saying is, with this shift to 
put all that burden on the human being. But then you rip out that uh, created order and moral order that gives um, definition to the human being and its orientation. It's, it may have worked for a couple of generations because they had internalized that cosmic order. But what happens when that is no longer there? And I think what you hit on, you talked about alienation and anxiety. I, you know, I'm going to take a big leap here, but I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing, especially in the psychological world and mental illness and mental mm. health, mm. are completely byproducts. Mm. I'm not saying all of them. I understand sure. what's going on there. But byproducts of not having those signposts that we're created to have and those icons through which we, we, we have to, to, to place right. limits. And right. it, this is that terror you're talking about. And, and so in, an instrumental reason is difficult because it's no longer governed by anything but um, impure passion. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, yep. you know, that's, the, that's the deep alternative to the real Christian vision, which was not autonomy, but formed loves and formed right. freedoms. A, a couple of thoughts that occur to me as you describe our predicament. Mm -hmm. One is that for elites, this mm -hmm. is paradise. <laughs> In other words, you know, when you think about the elites, and frankly, we belong to it, yeah. you know, so let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we're, you know, we have at our disposal uh, a great number of privileges, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, sh I don't sort of recoil from that term, privilege. I understand yeah. that, uh, now the, pr the difference between me and what the social justice warriors mm. uh, mean when, I when, we when we talk about privilege is that for me, it's an it, it, there's always going to be a hierarchy in any kind of society. Right. Yeah. They have this dream of, of a society without anyone having any advantage over anybody else. It's crazy. It just, yeah. it, it, it'll never happen. It never, it's never has existed. But, mm. but for, for the elites who have the resources and who have sort of, uh, you know, access to institutions, this idea that I don't have any constraints is uh, very attractive. But, you know, historically, uh, the Elites have had a sense of noblesse oblige, you know, sort of an, uh, an obligation to help and serve. Now, this is, in our contemporary situation, channeled into sort of the welfare state, and yeah. sort of mechanisms. That's and, right. and, and so these people support, so they, they live it in, in sort of two different ways. You know, on one hand, if you look at the, at the, the lifestyle of, of, of a person who belongs to the elite, it's very conventional. There's a husband and a wife, and they stay together, yeah. and they have kids, and they make sacrifices. Private school. Yeah. <laughs> Private school, all this kind of stuff, <laughs> where they're taught to, to do their homework. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all kinds. But they, they refuse to impose any of that on anybody else, because far be it from them mm -hmm. to impose anything yeah. on, on these poor masses yearning yeah. to be free. I, I've often been suspicious of that. Maybe that's just my <laughs> suspicious side. But I've often said it's just the best form of, of not having to have a good security system. If you, well, if you can pay extra in terms of taxes, yeah, you can right. really keep your lifestyle exactly where you need it and be uh, not impacted by anyone else. But yeah. anyway, I no, don't I, know. I, no, I think that's yeah. right. I, yeah. I think for most of these people, yeah. they don't actually know anybody on a personal that's level. That's right. It's all about sort of paying, paying off the guilt, that's, and it's sort of like it's a, it's, a, it's a tax on guilt. <laughs> so they feel bad about having advantages, and so they just throw some money into the system yeah. and say, "Take care of part. those other people." Yeah, you you right. subcontracted out. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Whereas what those people really need is bourgeois values imposed on them. So let's be clear. Yeah. The working class, the yeah. underclass, what they really need is self-discipline. Yeah. They need yeah. to learn how to order their lives in a way that reflects the yeah. elite. Yeah. So what we have now is we have these two sort of worlds. Yeah. We have the elite over here who pursue their sort of their passions. But, but, but what that would require of the elite mm. is, a, is a curtailment of their freedom. They'd have to take upon themselves a personal burden yeah. of saying to, and, and thinking, how does my behavior affect 
other people. You know, my wife wants to rewatch Downton Abbey. Mm. Hmm. And so we are rewatching Downton Abbey. <laughs> That's a lot of episodes. She who must be obeyed. I, yes, I, yes, yes, yes. I saw the first time in a similar way. would say, yes. But, but you see that there. You see that sense of noblesse oblige. You see the sense of, you know, these people downstairs do all of this stuff for us, and we are responsible to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there is, a, you know, I mean, there's clear class difference. There are all kinds mm -hmm. of things like that. You're working in two different worlds almost. But the two worlds intersect, and they intersect in meaningful and personal ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's completely absent today. Right. And, it, right. and, and it's, not, it's not just on the, uh, on the social level, bringing it into these issues of religion. It ties in with that as well. Th think about the relationship between Sam and Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. There's, a, there's a beautiful friendship, yeah. but the class difference is never lost. That's right. Yeah. And well, it's, it's interesting. I remember my, my grandmother um, from Finland, and my, my, my great-grandfather died very early, so my great-grandmother had to raise in America, not being able to speak any English, 11 children. Two still back, uh, 13 altogether, two still back in Finland. Wow. My grandmother was one of the older ones. She had to go to work early. She couldn't finish school. She went and worked for very wealthy people. But in doing that work, she was educated. Mm. She learned to cook and put a value on education and everything else she would have never had access to. And it's not to, it's not to sit here and talk about you know, what goods and bads can come out of that. But what talks about, she didn't become, you know, she, she didn't hold a grudge. Yes. She took, she took right. it as an act of providence in a way and found, she became, uh, not only did she start, her, her whole house was aesthetic. It was, she started painting and she started mm -hmm. listening to classical music. I mean, mm -hmm. these are her, these are the love she had. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to look at that form, but, but, uh, and, but uh, she watched right. the cooks in the, cook, the kitchen and she became a perfectionist. And, and when she married, her husband owned, uh, my grandfather owned a, a meat store and they became masters of food, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They would have never had that experience. Mm. Mm. Had they went the path they probably were heading, mm -hmm. not to say that it was it, but I think it's had generational impact. But mm -hmm. I remember my grandma. Strangest thing, she really didn't grow up in the church, but she always told me, "Grow up and be a theologian." I don't even know why. Yeah. But uh, just I, I suspect <laughs> I can explain that. But that's <laughs> that's a that's a whole other thing. Yeah. In, in Germany, for example, yeah. I was told that the okay in Germany. The more titles you have in front of your name, the better. Ah. So theology uh, I, I was going to uh, fly. To, I actually flew to Germany once on the Luftwaffe. Not Lufthansa, <laughs> the Luftwaffe. And so I go, I go down to Dulles, and there's this um, German military base there, air base. And I go in, and I hand the guy my passport. And this young German officer looks at it and says, oh, Herr Sunshine. And he starts looking down the list. And all of a sudden, it's not... Oh, Herr Doctor, Herr Professor Doctor yeah. Sunshine. You're right. You know, and I can see I'm moving up a rung. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I, Germans I, are very particular I, 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 about that. I am yeah. now a bird colonel or something. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. what I was told that the only title that is higher than Professor Doctor is Reverend Professor Doctor. Ah. <laughs> so Not a bad there, one is, there is a huge degree of status attached yeah, right. in traditional, especially Lutheran in Finland, yes. Lutheran right. societies, Sorry, that right. the, 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 the theologian pastor, pastor. is right. actually a very, very high office. You're right. And I, and I do have two uncles on that side that, that were, and so that probably kind of spawned her on. But, but you're, you're exactly right, and I know that similarly with Germany. But that is telling because both of those cultures have still held on to that place and that ordering of things in, in their, their academic Mm -hmm. um, world in which we're here. I, I've never been completely happy with that notion. I know there's a strong emphasis on free church in, in the U.S. and stuff, and this, but it's, it almost flattens to where you know, oh, you know, I don't want to be called pastor or reverend, right. and it's okay. I get the, I get what's going on there, right. but why not? Right. I mean, again, I, it's not because you are honoring uh, um, a human being as though they have more. So you know, personal righteousness per se right. than anyone else, other than showing that this is this is a a, a holding to that distinct right. ordering of things that God's put in place to to shepherd His flock. I mean, I do think there is a well, there, you know, if if we think about the word hierarchy, yeah, you know, sacred order, yeah, 
You know, I, I'm reading a book right now entitled uh, The Unseen Realm by uh, Michael Heiser. Interesting know. book. Yeah, yeah, I haven't yeah. read it yet. Yeah. But, you know, essentially what you have with that book is that, you know, you've got a, an unseen realm that's, yeah. that's a hierarchy. In other words, in other words, the hierarchy uh, it doesn't end with what's unseen. It filters down into the seen. Hmm. In other words, the the seen reflects the unseen, and is part of a single overarching reality or sort of con yeah, contiguous yeah. contiguous reality. Uh, you know, and and so this this attempt to flatten everything. Yeah. Uh, I think. Uh, it inevitably leads you to materialism. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if there's any, because matter, mm -hmm. if you, if you, when you lose the, you know, the ability to sort of draw something up, you know, by a point, when you draw something up, it's always by a point. It's not as though you sort of lift the entire thing, hmm. you know, all at once. There's always a sense in which there's a point that, that rises and draws everything up behind it. And, if, if we have a theological vision and understanding of the cosmos and order, why should this be a surprise? Yeah, yeah. I think, of course, it's, um, you know, th there are problems, I mean, mm -hmm. with envy. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is it that, uh, that caused Satan to fall? Yeah. You know, there's, there's an aspiration. Yeah. There's an arrogation. Mm -hmm. uh, wanting what's above you. Yeah. You know, if, uh, an, uh, an unwillingness to settle for your place yeah. in, in the order of things. Be bedazzled by your own creaturely goodness. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> well, strange yeah, well, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, turns, he turns in on yeah. himself. I'm also reading yeah. I'm also reading Paradise Lost again right now. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about this that we don't really think about is, you know, we, we tend to be very materialistic in the sense that we think we're this worldly. But in one sense, you can look at the unseen realm that Heiser talks about and recognize in this as something that is deeper than ours because the beings in this realm don't live and die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Their, their, you know, their, their, their lifespan, if there is even such a thing, is extends throughout human history. The whole of human history is, right. you know, they've observed the whole thing. So there's a sense in which you can look at this as saying that, you know, our world, as we, we've talked about this in a sense before, our world is, is sort of secondary mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to this, this other spiritual realm. But in keeping with Christian ideas, there's an inversion that occurs mm -hmm. because we are the ones who are going to judge angels. Yes, yes. That, that. And, and this, that, that yeah. inversion where, yeah, I mean, the, it, the first will be last and the last first. We are right now, in terms of this kind of a hierarchy, we're the last. Right. But it's going to invert. And what we do now matters because it shapes what happens in the inversion. Right. It's, I've, it's just I've, I've, astounding I've actually, stuff. I've heard some speculation on, as to why that, it, why that will happen. <laughs> One is, is a way to sort of humiliate the demons. <laughs> <laughs> In, in other words, uh, or I've, ac I've actually heard speculation that the reason why the demons rebelled was because they knew the plan, <laughs> that we were to be elevated above them, and they yeah, weren't too they crazy like about that. that. That's yeah. actually straight Islam. Okay, okay. okay. Pretty close. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. And I'm sure they got that from early Christian writers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think, though, that in we have to add to that the incarnation, mm. because the incarnation is the thing that puts us in a position where we can judge the angels. Right. Because, I mean, think about it. God right now, and it has to be worded this way, God shares a nature with us. Mm. We had it first. Mm -hmm. God shares a nature with us. And he made it, of course. Oh, of course, yes. Okay. But what this does is it elevates human dignity far above anything else that is out there. Anything in creation, yeah. there's nothing that can compare with human dignity because of the incarnation. That's one of the themes of Paralandra, by the way, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, and, so, it, and, and I think it is the, the big game changer in everything. I mean, everything religiously, everything morally, everything in terms of the created order is the way in which the incarnation figures into it. It mm -hmm. changes everything. everything. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I really think that's why the church 
uh, early church spent so much of its energy on Christology and getting it right. Mm, mm, I mean, mm. it was Christ as Lord and as deity, as Yahweh, it, it and, and the incarnation's relation to that. And, and I do think that it's, it's what also energized kind of the um, deeper reflections on the significance of material creation now that it has actually been able to delineate the form of the incarnation. And it's interesting to actually read the debates, for example, between when the West broke with the East in, in the church, the, the Orthodox were arguing, you have not been consistent in your metaphysic. You haven't taken the incarnation of Christ seriously. Right. And I'm not defending or, or going sure. away from that, but I'm just saying that those debates were so far removed from, we just think we know what they're, they're talking about. There, there's yeah. a, there's a, a marvelous quote from <laughs> someone who visited Constantinople at one point in the midst of these Christological debates. Yeah. He said, if you add, it's something, I, I, this isn't exactly right, but it was something along the lines of, if you ask a merchant what the price of a loaf of bread is, he will answer, the son is consubstantial with the father. <laughs> um, you know, you, you get, you know, it was, <laughs> and in one of the, just sort of part and parcel, parcel of life. To, yeah, right. and the other thing was, is, is how dare we diminish the material creation if it was the, if it was assumed by the son in order to redeem us. Right, That's right. a very profound, right. and this is a course, I think, I think the reformers tried to balance those, I mean, you know, the reformed sacrament tried to balance those between not materializing God, um, keeping that union intact, but also not, um, not looking at the material creation as, as sort of the, the, the Baptistic and, and Anabaptist traditions tended to do as almost um, as something that was a, a lessening yes. of, of the place at which God could come and delineate the true form that was to represent his, his invisible image. You know, I, I, today in my history of Christianity class, <laughs> second full day of classes, first day introduction, background, that kind of thing, I was talking about the resurrection. And what I told them is that if your worldview does not allow for paranormal events, you've got a little bit of a problem trying to figure out what actually happened to the body. Mm. <laughs> okay. mm. However, if your worldview does allow for paranormal events, it, and I always use the word paranormal rather than miracle, because yeah, yeah. It, 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 it catches their attention. Yeah. Um, but I said, if it does, then that gives you a couple of other options for dealing with what happened to the body. But it also gives you a much more interesting, much more exciting world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, the, I think, going back to where we started here, yeah. it seems to me that that's really, in a lot of ways, the problem. Yeah. That when you go with this sort of materialistic conception of the universe, Everything flattens. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no meaning, there's no significance, there's nothing bigger than yourself to live for. Yeah. And as a result, it's not an accident that we have an opioid epidemic. Yeah. Right. Or, mean, or any number of other Or that most of, most of our congregants are going to the ashram three to four days a week and then they're in church on Sunday sometimes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, we, it all fits. Yeah. When, when you anchor it in the, in the historic Christian tradition, in the worldview and the metaphysics yeah. and all of that, that the church believed and died for in many cases. Yeah. Christians died for, for these things. You actually have a bigger, more exciting, more vivid world than the one that most of us, this small constrained thing that most of us live in. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's mind boggling why anybody would prefer that yeah. to this bigger, broader reality. And, 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 and uh, alongside that is this notion that we're, we're, we were promised in the, in, in, in the New Testament that when the Spirit comes, it's going to lead the church into to these, to all, right. all these things. And look where it led the church. Look what it led through it first. <laughs> you know, I mean, look at the places it took it through the, the Platonic and the Neoplatonic world in which it was allowed to articulate these things and put them in a place and, and sort of to, to suggest that we had to tear all that down and, and develop it later begs the question of whether or not that was in, in continuity with it 
you know, or yeah. not. Yeah, I, I remember a, uh, my introduction to, or uh, my, my first course in church history, um, my professor uh, used that verse uh, in the fullness of time yeah. as a way to, to frame sort of the coming together of the, the Hellenic hmm. sort of outlook and the Judeo, yeah. out, you know, the Jewish outlook, sort of, you know, there was, a, there was something God was doing yeah. within Hellenism. Obviously, there was all kinds of, you know, like yeah. just crazy stuff mm -hmm. and, uh, that w was incompatible. Uh, but sure. there was something that was going on there that prepared uh, the Gentiles you know the Greeks. That's right. For the gospel. Yes. And then with the, with the arrival or the coming of Christ, hi Lynn, hi David. Glenn's family has arrived. Just yeah. for, for so listeners know. <laughs> Why don't you pull up a, a, a chair there? <laughs> and uh, but uh, and so it, it, we're, we are kind of arriving, kind of kind of <laughs> coming into the end of the show. Yeah. But uh, that that seems to be paradoxically. You know, people who reject Hellenism, sort of in principle, yeah. seem to me anyway yeah. to to reject providence. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, God's providential ordering of history and the idea that all things were ready you know, in the fullness of time. Fullness of God time. sent His Son. Yeah. Anyway, I, so, I think you're I think you're right about that. I think Harnack is purely wrong. We've said that we've said that before. <laughs> And we've wandered in a lot of places. It's right. okay. I think this theme is good to visit again. Um, a couple of the areas I wanted to visit. I mean, one of the upsides of what Milbank did is he, he did expose the fact that um, currently so, uh, social theory has sort of replaced theology mm -hmm. as sort of the way in which even theologians want to start talking about this, the, you know, theology within this secular space. And he said, basically, you know, um, I, th I think this is a, 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 you know, sort of sums it up well. Nicholas Lash puts it this way. He goes, in all these versions of sociology, he, he goes, they're illusory and self-defeating. Secular theory sought to render worship manageable, to tame it either by relegating it to the private sphere or showing it um, either by re um, that when properly explained, its objects were familiar and friendly features of the world, like mm. you or me or America or beautiful ideas. He goes, but according to Milbank, however, it can be shown that secular social theories are, in fact, theologies. Mm -hmm. And what they are is not Christian theologies. Mm -hmm. And so this is, I think, to end the end note, maybe we can revisit it again, is that I think one of the things that a lot of the evangelical world they're not the only ones guilty, but what they're, they are guilty in their own way, is when they import social theory and all these different theories, is they don't realize they're importing the theologies that go with them and underwrite them. Mm. These aren't value-neutral and, and theologically-neutral ideas and systems and concepts. They're governed by uh, uh, traditions of meaning, and when they aren't conscious of that, they're actually shifting um, the meaning of Christian theology, when Christian theology is forced to be expressed within their, their okay. concepts and ideas and uh, forms of analysis. So I don't right. know if that was clear, but... No, I think that's yeah. great. Well, we ought to wrap up at this point. Uh, yeah. Glenn, do you have anything you want to uh, say before we close? Uh, again, I'm, I'm just struck by how much the traditional Christian historic understanding of the world provides a much richer and deeper and I find much more exciting, compelling, and attractive vision than anything modernity has to offer. Right. Yeah, once you get past air conditioning and rocket ships, yeah. modernity. Indoor plumbing. Indoor <laughs> plumbing is good too. Um, yeah. Right, right, right. Have one last point. It sure. is Glenn's birthday today. That's it. Oh, yes. That's right. It's happy birthday, Glenn. Happy and birthday. you had a few points about today. Yeah, Historically, yeah. This was we can uh, wrap what, up with the, the feast day of John the Baptist beheading. <laughs> is yes. Yeah. yeah. Today is the anniversary <laughs> or the feast day of the beheading of John the Baptist. Yes, there was a feast day for that. Yeah. And and also this is also the birthday for Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson huh? and I which, were born on exactly the same day. Which same is a vindication year. of astrology because you're such a great dancer. Yeah. And and my you will you will notice those of you who are not here may notice my family laughing in the background. Um, actually I consider that a refutation of astrology. 
<laughs> uh, I am neither a musical genius, a dancer, nor a pedophile. <laughs> well, we're, we're grateful for the last one. And my, my wife and I met for the first time on this day. So Ooh, seven years in terms of our first introduction yes, to each other. In, big day. In, in the Terminator movies, this is the day in which the war with the machines begins. Oh. Wow. Man, you have done some research on yeah. this. <laughs> I've got a couple more, too, but we'll spare you. Hold on, I can... I, <laughs> anyway, uh, as we, as we uh, wrap things up, I just want to say thank you for our, uh, to our supporters. Yes. You know, we have about 2,000 plus people who listen to us on a regular basis, and, and we're kind of shocked by that. Not only that, we have some folks who actually throw money at us. Thank God for them. Yeah, and <laughs> we're, yeah, we're grateful for, the, for, for those, those people who do that, and we're, we're thinking about ways that we can responsibly use those funds to help develop the show and make it even better. And if you'd like to join those folks, you can do that. Uh, the uh, Fight, Laugh, Feast Network has a way to become a member. If you go to the uh, flfnetwork.com uh, forward slash membership, you can uh, become a supporter of the network. And if you use uh, the code PUGCAST <laughs> when you uh, sign up, then the uh, the show the uh, the podcast the uh, theology podcast will be the beneficiary of your donations and uh, anyway but uh, those who have given to us we're grateful thank you for that and uh, those who will do so in the future we're grateful for you too anyway I think that's it I think uh, Glenn's family is here to have dinner with Glenn so we better let them enjoy dinner with 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 uh, each other and uh, say goodbye so goodbye bye now bye now.